Amen. You may be seated. Uh, you may not have noticed, but I wasn't here for the last two weeks. And, uh, but it is good to be back. I rarely ever miss two weeks in a row. But I just want to thank you for your graciousness and your support. Um, uh, the state, Caden was running some uh, cross-country stuff, and the state changed things around. It's weird that plans wouldn't go according to the way they should during this 2020 year. I know that's a little bit surprising, but uh, things were changed around, so thank you. And it's just a reminder to myself as well is uh, that uh, if I'm not qualified as a husband and a father, then I'm not qualified to be a uh, pastor of this church either. So thank you for your graciousness to allow me to go and be dad. And have a good time with that. And speaking of being a dad, when my um, three oldest were uh, very young, uh, my wife took them on a trip down to the Bradenton, Florida area to go in to, my, uh, to their grandmother's house for the very first time. Now, they went down, and when they came back, it was very odd because they all began to speak of their grandmother, my mom, as, as gra- Granny No Touch. And that was a little strange to me. So, of course, I was curious, where did this come from? And uh, in asking Larissa, she told me, she said, well, to be honest with you, from the moment that we went inside the house, uh, your mom began to follow all the kids around. And whenever they would touch something she thought they would break or touch something that would hurt them or touch something she thought they were dirty, she would say, no touch, no touch. And she said that all weekend. So they began to immediately refer to her as Granny No Touch. And so in defense of my mom, uh, she didn't have little kids in the house for really a number of decades. And uh, the truth is, if you raised kids, and if you're still raising them, you probably have used that term, no touch, probably a thousand times in your own home. But when we use it, we usually use it in reference to things, right? To objects, like don't touch that or don't touch this. So we usually don't use it to reference people. That would just be weird, to say, don't touch her, you'll break her, or don't touch him, he's dirty. That just seems to be uh, inappropriate and unkind. But the truth is, there was a group of people who lived during the time of Christ, known as lepers, which really, to be able to use that phrase in reference to them would be completely appropriate for their day. Adults begin to train their children at a very young age not to touch a leper or not to touch anything that had come into contact that had that they had come in contact with. Uh, some adults even carried around stones in, in areas where lepers were more prevalent to be able to throw them at lepers to be able to keep them at bay to keep themselves and their families safe during that time. Well, you say, well, what does this have to do with us? It's not like we live here in Nassau County with a bunch of lepers. That is, unless you were diagnosed with coronavirus, then you probably are viewed a little bit as a leper. And, uh, and so what does that have to do with us? Well, it, it, we begin to understand it when we understand that in the Old Testament and New Testament, that God uses this picture or this physical disease of leprosy as a picture Uh, of the spiritual disease of sin that really impacts our souls. And so the reason this is significant is because in this passage, what we see is we see Jesus in his compassion and his willingness to reach out and touch this leper in order to be able to heal and to restore him, which lets us know of the promise that Jesus is equally as willing to be able to reach out, touch, embrace, 
heal, forgive, and to restore sinners. And that is really, really good news. Now, before we take of the Lord's Supper this morning, and I hope that you got one of these little things. This is very strange. This is COVID-19 compliant uh, and everything. So hopefully you got one of those. If not, uh, afterwards, slip out and grab one, if you will. Uh, But before we take of that, I want to show you three similarities between a first century leper and a a, a 21st century sinner. Let me show the similarities between the two. First of all, we see a desperate condition. They share a desperate condition. Look at verse 12. He says, while he was in one of the cities. Now, he's referring to Christ in a city that Luke remains, doesn't mention, doesn't name. And he says, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, the word leprosy in the Old and New Testament, it really is, is used to describe more than just Hansen's disease that we know of as modern-day leprosy. It is also used to describe really a married a number of different skin ailments, afflictions, diseases, anything from something that is curable to that which is ultimately fatal. And, uh, and what we find here is when he says that it is full of leprosy, uh, Luke, we know, uh, was a doctor. He was a physician. And so he's saying that to be able to let us know that this is the most serious type of leprosy somebody can have. This is the the type that will take your life. And it was not only a serious type, but it was advanced in its stages. So this man, in essence, was a dead man walking. Death was assured for this man. This was his particular uh, condition. Now, one of the bad things about leprosy is it attacked the central nervous system, which would ultimately lead somebody with the inability to be able to feel, to feel. Now, that sounds really good, especially if you experience a lot of pain. But what was difficult about this was that it put them in even graver, greater danger because they would wound themselves or cut themselves, become unaware of it, wouldn't tend to those wounds, and great inf- affection would begin to set in, causing a whole another group of physical problems as well as horrific bodily disfigurations. And so this man was suffering physically. He may not have felt the pain, but there's a psychological pain in knowing that death was soon to come and seeing your body be able, being able to, or being deteriorated right before your eyes. But some of the greatest anguish and pain that he actually struggled with was not so much just physical, but really came socially. And the reason for that is because nobody wanted to hang on around the leper. They were, they were ostracized. They were quarantined. That probably sounds a little bit familiar for us in 2020. Nobody wanted to be around them. Nobody knew what caused the disease. People were afraid of, 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 of getting it. And, and so what they would do is they would follow the law of Leviticus chapter 13 and verse 45, which says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. So it's, it's bad enough to know that you soon are going to die. And you can see the effects of death on your life with no possibility of cure. It's another thing to do it completely alone to be completely separated from those that you love. No family get-togethers, no family holidays, no family celebrations and birthdays. Now, I know some of you are going, well, that kind of sounds kind of nice. No, it's not, especially when your life is being threatened at this point. And so what we find is this man recognizes what a desperate position that he is in and the situation that he is in. So he acts desperately. That's what we do. 
So what I did, I was desperate, and I desperately began to pursue my wife because of my disparity, right? And so this is what desperate people do. They do desperate things. He actually enters into the city, which was outlawed according to Leviticus chapter 13, and it was punishable by death and being put to death if he was caught in the city. But by this point, what does he have to lose? Now, the reason that I'm taking the time to really try to kind of highlight this disease and its impact and its torment, both physically and socially and mentally, and the anguish that he experienced, because again, it is an ultimate picture of the effect and impact and implication of sin and the life of every man, woman, and child. Sin against God is a death sentence. It corrupts our soul. It destroys any possibility of fellowship with God. We are all created in the image of God, but that image has been seriously marred and distorted because of the sin that we have ultimately committed against him. We are, as the Bible says, that we are outcasts from God. We struggle with a disease of sin that we really don't understand and and realize that there is absolutely no cure of. We are, as the Bible says, that we are literally the walking dead. If you share the gospel with somebody and begin to speak to them about their sin, they'll immediately say, don't, don't condemn me. And, but the Bible says we are condemned in our sin and our trespasses already. We are dead in them. So what the Bible teaches. And so what we find is, is, is in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul wrote this of himself, struggling with his own sin. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So what this leper does is he recognizes the seriousness of his physical condition. And it's only then that he begins to cry out for help. And the need of every man, woman, and child who has never come to faith in Jesus Christ, their greatest need is to recognize their own spiritual depravity and understand that they are dead men and women and children walking, that they are under the judgment of God. This is their greatest need. Now, This is not easy to do. Let me give you two points of application here. One of the difficulties of this is the fact that ultimately uh, we have to be bold in our sharing the gospel, but this is really difficult to do, is it not? We, We want part of our jobs is to tell people the whole counsel of the word of God or the whole gospel. Look, I love to tell people that God loves them. I love to tell them that Jesus died for them. I love to tell them that Jesus has a great plan for their life. Anybody else share that? We, I love that part. The part that I don't like is to tell them why Jesus had to die for them. That he died for them because they have rebelled against God, that they have committed sin against God, and that sin is causing them to be underneath the judgment of God. That's part, the first and one of the most essential parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's uncomfortable It's uncomfortable for the people who are hearing it, and it's uncomfortable for the one who is speaking it, because it's even more so now, more now in my life than ever before, because now we live in a culture that if you say anything about a person's way of living or how they live or what they do at all, and say anything less than they are good and we are good and everybody's okay, you are hateful and you need to be quiet and you need to be silenced. But how will anybody ever come to see their need for Jesus Christ unless they somehow, some way, understand the seriousness of their sinful condition? The answer to that is they won't. And not only should we be bold, but I think we should be thankful. All of you went around and began to write 
down maybe. Uh, I know when we gather with our family, all the kids wrote down what they were grateful for and, and they put it in, into the little hat and I was tempted to write my name and put it in there. Hey, I'm, 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 I'm tempted to, for Mike. Hey, thank you. And it was really me that was thankful for me, but I didn't do that. But one thing that we ought to be thankful for this Thanksgiving is thank God that he loved us enough and gracious enough that he revealed to us our own spiritual condition. That is something that we don't normally think about. We don't wanna go to church and this is one of those where maybe you came to church and you were hoping for something far more uplifting and it is if you'll let us continue. But but we we wanna come to church, we wanna feel better, we wanna whatever. But the truth of the matter is, is the Bible shows us exactly who we are and what we are like and often exposes the sin that was in us. That is a good thing because it draws us back to our need and our embracing of Jesus Christ. And we would never do it. And we'd never do it if we didn't see the need. And we ought to thank God for the people in our life that, that love us enough to be able to tell the truth. Parents that love us or children that love us enough and tell us when there's sin in our life or a spouse that loves us or, or preachers that are willing to be able to tell the truth so that we see the problem so that we can also then be able to very clearly be able to see the solution of the person of Jesus Christ. And you know, we can even begin, if we embrace this, we can even begin to thank God for those who reveal our sin and not in a loving way. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Please don't elbow your spouse. But somebody who would come and they'd be able to say, hey, look, I see sin in your life. And really all they're trying to do is they're trying to hurt you. They're trying to, they're they're trying. But here's the idea. But if what they say is true, then even in their attempt to be able to hurt and to be able to harm, God is gracious enough to be able to use it, to be able to use for our good and our help, for us to thank God for exposing something that is not Christ-like in our life so that we would believe and turn to him all the more. So what do we see here? First of all, we see this idea of a desperate condition. The second thing that we see is a humble position. Notice the second part of verse 12. He says, then he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, when somebody kneels or bows or falls on their face before somebody else, it's a universal sign of humility. They are genuinely recognizing that the person before them is greater than they are, that they are more powerful, that they have greater ability, uh, that, that that, that they are more worthy than themselves. And this is what this man recognizes. See, and this is the result, by the way, of coming face-to-face with desperate conditions. Desperate conditions lead us to what a humble position in life. Isn't that true? Uh, For example, when things are going really well, there's a propensity for you and I to be a little puffed up and a little prideful. Kids are obeying. Yes. Why? Because I'm a good parent. There's money in the bank. Why? Well, because I'm really good at managing money. Things are going splendidly at work. Well, I'm just a hard worker. Everything is good. Look what I've done. And people begin to applaud. What a great man or what a great woman. It's very easy to be puffed up. But when things begin to go south, when the kids are not obeying, when they're not doing what they ought to be able to do, and you've come to the end of yourself and there's nothing else you could do, they're just going to continue to rebel against you and against God. There's a way of that humbling. When, when, when you find out that somebody that you love so dearly has been diagnosed with a terminal disease, and the doctors say there's nothing else that we can, instantly you realize just how little power you have. When you come to a situation where you're about to lose a job, which many of you and many of us probably have never done, I have, got fired as a pastor, you know that story, amen. 
But if you look at a job and there's nothing on the horizon for you to be able to get a job, to be able to maintain money, you know that this is, these are humbling positions. There's no way to be able to puff, be puffed up. And please understand, these things in and of themselves are not good. Rebellion is not good. Death is not good. Disease is not good. Poverty is not good. But God is good enough to be able to use those circumstances that we find ourselves in to be able to bring us to a good place. And the good place that he brings us is the place of humility. Why is that good? Because when we humble ourselves, it's when God is so willing and able to come and to help us and to get us out of the mess that we are in. It's that humility that we ultimately need to, that we find ourselves. And this is what this man is ultimately demonstrating and this man's humility is not only being seen really in his posture, but also really in his speech. He says to Jesus, he says, you can make me clean. You know, that's the beginning of faith. You do understand that, right? The beginning of faith is to recognize I can't, but he can. I don't know how he came to this realization. I was trying to think through this. How does he know that Jesus can heal him? How does he, how does, how does he know that? He's, he's been ostracized. He can't be around people. He can't be around the people that Jesus has touched and hurt and healed. He hasn't seen it with his own eyes. Well, how has he done it? Well, most likely it's because he's heard it. Because somebody loved this man. This was a family member. This was a friend, a spouse, whoever it was. And they loved him enough, even though they couldn't come in close contact, would probably yell to him, I've got good news. I know that things seem hopeless. But Jesus is the answer. We've seen him. We've been touched by him. We've been healed by him. I'm telling you, if you can just get to Jesus Christ, he can heal you. He can heal this affliction. And you know what this began to do? Just like hearing the word of God, we don't get to see Jesus with our own eyes. We, we, we don't get to walk with him in a physical way. But what do we do? The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When other people begin to tell us and share their testimonies about how God has changed their life, how God has forgiven them of their sin, how now they are completely new men and women because of what God, the work of, that Jesus Christ has done inside of their life, other people begin to be drawn in their faith towards God. And so here's, I, I don't know if that's what's happened, but this very well might be why he comes to begin to believe, but this is where faith begins. Do you believe that God can do anything? We, we believe that there's no sickness that he cannot heal and there's no debt that he cannot pay and there's no need that he cannot meet and there's no sin that he cannot forgive. We believe all of that, but that's just the beginning of faith. There's another aspect of faith we see with this man and it's not just saying he's able, it's also to say that he's sovereign. That's what humble faith looks like. You say, what does that mean? Well, we hear it in this man's voice. He says, if you will, do you notice those three words? If you will, you can make me clean. It's the same words that Jesus used right before he's being crucified. And he says, if it be your will, take this cup from me. I know you can, but not my will, but your will be done. This is another aspect of humility. What he's recognizing is he says, Jesus, I know that you can heal me, but he's showing that Jesus is greater than him by saying, hey, you have the right the sovereign right to choose whether you will or not heal me. I have no power over you. I am in submission to you. You do what you deem to be the best. How important this particular truth is for all of us. For many people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ to come and to be able to understand that, that yes, God can do everything, but at the same time, we also submit to his, his sovereignty to choose whether to do it or not. 
And it's important because if we don't understand both of those or believe both, that he is able and he is sovereign, then we will either, either continually doubt that he can do what he says he can do, or number two, we will doubt his love for us. And I've seen this more times than I can count as a pastor over the last 20 some odd years. When, when somebody who seems to for many years be walking with the Lord, professing to be believers in Jesus Christ, and then they begin to pray for a loved one or a friend or a child or a father or whoever it is, and they begin to pray for God to be able to heal them, and God doesn't heal them, or some tragedy happens in their life, and they walk completely away from the faith, saying, I know God could, but he didn't. And then what do they do? They walk away from him in faith altogether. What is that doing? It's showing not that they've submitted to Christ at all, but they're demanding that Christ submit to them. And so what we find is we have to understand that many times God, get this, knows best for us. Here's one thing I want to assure you of. God will always do all things for his glory and for your good. The problem is it's hard for us to understand how some of the things he does will be for our good. It is hard. Example, my wife. My wife loves me. She does everything for her glory and my glory. No, I'm just kidding. That, that analogy breaks down somewhere there. Uh, but one of the things I love is I absolutely loved baked goods. I love cakes. I love cookies. I love pies. I love all of those things. Let's face it. I love ice cream and fudge and everything else there is that's sweet. But, but those things I really like. And I'm using this particular thing because the point is, is I love them, but they don't love me. And I can eat a little bit, but I can't eat a lot of it. And so we'll be down, maybe downtown, and uh, we get one of those times where it's a date night and we're going around. And you know how you're walking around with your, with your spouse like as a zombie? You just, huh? Ah, the kids aren't here. What are we doing? I don't know. Just let's walk this way. Okay. And you just kind of walk. And you go in, you get some food, and we get done eating. And then afterwards, we, we inevitably will go buy like a baked goods store. And so we'll go buy a little shop and they'll have all the cakes in there and little cream puffs and all those things. And I'm like, now that looks good. And she'll sit there and go, uh -uh, no, yeah, you ain't, you're not doing that. Mm -mm, you're not doing that. And the reason is because she knows if I eat too much of it, I'll be sick. If I eat it too late at night, I get sick. I don't know what's in it. I don't know if it's fats, if it's butter, if it's oils. I don't know what it is, but every time I eat it, if it's late at night, I end up getting sick. So my wife is sitting there going, you're not gonna do this. It's gonna make you sick. Well, I'm much nicer outwardly than what I'm feeling and thinking on the inside. What I'm thinking on the inside is, I'm a grown man. I can have a piece of cake if I want to. In fact, I got money in my pocket because I got a job. I'm a man. All right, don't tell me. So we'll do, we'll do the jockey and back and forth. I don't think you should. I think we should. Maybe I'll just eat a little bit. No, I don't think you should. You can't eat a little bit. And you go back and forth. I don't know if anybody, does this sound familiar to anybody? Just me. Great, perfect illustration. And finally, I get my way because I'm a man. I eat the cake and I am sick as a dog after eating it. And, and she'll just sit there and she doesn't even have to say, I told you so, because basically she told me so. And the truth of the matter is, is you find out she's not telling me this to badger me or to harm me or to keep me from good things. She's keeping from what very well, even though I don't recognize it from that which is ultimately gonna harm me, and this is how God works in our life. You say, I don't see why God wouldn't, and you answer that. You answer whatever that is. I don't see how it is. And then you remind yourself of the Old Testament teaching that God's ways are not our ways. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. He knows what is best. 
And so here's what we have and understand that he doesn't always answer every request that we make. But here's one request he will always grant, the forgiveness of sin. Whether you are repenting of sin and coming to faith in Christ for the very first time and saying, I recognize that I'm a sinner before God. I recognize that I'm deserving of judgment. I recognize that I can't earn my good, I can't earn my way into good graces towards him. The only, way, only thing that I can do is to repent of my sin and believe in what Christ did for me on the cross, that he was a substitute for me. And by faith, I receive what he did for me. If you come to that point, whether you're coming to that point or you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and just along the way, every day, you're confessing your sins to him. He is faithful to just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. It is always, always his will to forgive and to restore you. So we see here in the text of Scripture, we see these, this difficult, excuse me, oh, <clears throat> sorry. We see this desperate condition. We see this humble position. And finally, we see this complete restoration. Here's where we really begin to see this really great news. In verse 13, it says, And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus did what nobody else would dare to do. He touched this man that, quite frankly, turned the stomachs of everybody in their culture, everybody who lived beside them. And, and he did what nobody else would do, not because it was unlawful for him to be able to do it, but mainly just because of the repulsive nature of the disease. The people were nervous, not only that they may catch the disease, but they really believed that they too would somehow inherit some type of sin. Remember, they believed that if you were sick, it was because of the direct cause of your sin, and that sin would jump on you as well. If you came in contact, you would become unclean, which means you would be unclean before God. But Jesus does something here that nobody else is willing to do, and he does something that nobody is able to do. What does he say? He says, he says, I will be clean. And immediately he touches him, and this man, the leprosy, left him. And when it says the leprosy left him, it means instantaneously. That's the kind of language that he's using in the original Greek. It means that the, the, the disease in his blood cured up. The, the disease in his, in, his, in his organs was instantly gone. Uh, the effects of it with his skin uh, all were gone. Everything that was, that was disfigured now became normal once again instantaneously. This was an incredible miracle. And this is the beautiful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a person is born again, when they've repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they become a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. And what happens is, what's interesting about this, something happens here that ordinarily doesn't happen. That which is unclean comes into contact with that which is or clean, comes into contact with what is unclean, and what is unclean becomes clean. That's usually the opposite of what happens. Would, would you agree? It's why we don't eat food after we've dropped it on the floor. Yes? When we drop a, a food on the floor, oh, we don't sit there and go, oh, good, I've been meaning to clean the floor. Now that my clean piece of pie is on the floor, it's now made the floor clean. We don't do that. What do we do? Oh, there goes the piece of pie. Maybe. <laughs> there, 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 there's a, I should have used something different. There's my broccoli on the ground. Oh, okay. <laughs> Got to throw it away. And, and what do you do? You sit there and you say, well, it was clean, but now it's become defiled because it's come into contact with that which is unclean, right? And so, and, and by the way, the five-second rule is not a real thing. 
Okay, just for you that are like, five second rule, no. If it touches it, it's defiled. With Jesus, something very unusual happens. He touches the man without becoming defiled. And instead of him taking on this man's sickness, this man takes on his healing and his power and his righteousness. And this is the beauty of what salvation is. Listen, you are seen as being right before God, righteous before God when you trust in him, not because you on your own capacity and ability are, not because you have somehow arrived at some great state or because you are some great person that you've, you've been able to follow all the laws of God perfectly. No, you are now viewed as righteous in the sight of God because he imputed Christ's righteousness unto you. He was able to touch you and to be able to infuse his righteousness. So now you are clean and now you are ultimately whole. But this complete restoration, so when, now, now my question for you is, why, but why does he touch the man? Jesus could have spoken the words and the man could have been healed. Just like he ex nihilo created the entire creation out of nothing in the book of Genesis. How, how does he, why does he touch him? Because he wants to understand that this man has now been restored in his relationship with him. When he uses the word Lord to speak of Jesus, the word Lord in the Greek is not referring to sir, it's referring to God. He recognizes that Jesus Christ is divine. And so when God puts his hand around you, he is showing you, yes, you are forgiven, and yes, your relationship is restored. It's a beautiful picture. And so notice this, but it's not only the restoration with God, it's also a restoration with God's people. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, it says, And he charged him to tell no one, but to go and to show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. So he, he commands them to follow the law of Moses. And this is what this leper would have done. It was believed that only leprosy could be, could be uh, only healed by an act of God. And if you believe that you were healed, you would go to the priest. The priest would look you over and he would determine through a series of different observations of whether you had a leprosy or not. And if he determined that you no longer had the disease, you would go through an eight-day period of cleansing. So you'd be cleansed with different types of, of, of ceremonial cleansings and mikvahs, and, and, and the water would be there to be able to cleanse you. And then at the end of it, that person would begin to give a certain number of animal sacrifices. Now, when you get to the book of Hebrews, you find out that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these cleansing rituals, that people really can't wash away their sin with water, but they can wash away their sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. That they can't walk, wash away their sins through an animal sacrifice, but they can wash away their sins and be cleansed and be made right through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So do you see the connection here? And we see all the pictures. But the point here is, is the reason he wants him to go and to be declared is because he wants him to once again be restored to his relationship with God's people. Can you imagine the joy of this guy? Not only now being right with God, but now I get to see my family. Now I get to be with them. I'm no longer afraid of this death. And now I get to be with those who I ultimately love. And this is a picture of what happens when a person is born again. Look, we love all people, all people. Whether they believe in Jesus or not, we love them, we care for them, we pray for them, we treat people kindly, we do whatever. But there is a special element of love for those who are in the family. And so when those sinners, when that leper is on the outside and the outskirts, God touches him by his grace. He is now to be received by whom? The people within the community, within the faith community. You know, I think this, is, this leaves us with a question. I was thinking about this this last week. Who are the lepers of our day? 
In your mind, who do you view or in what category is a person where you view them almost as too sinful? Almost kind of outside of the grasp and the ability of God to be able to say. You would never say that because theologically you're stronger than that. Theologically, you understand that God can save anybody, and we love to be able to say it, but there's a portion of us that reserves a little bit of kind of, ah, I'm not so sure about that sin. And for all of us, it's probably a little bit different, depending on different people's experiences. Uh, For example, uh, for some, uh, the one sin that they have a hard time seeing God really to be able to, 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 to forgive and restore is adultery. Maybe you've been hurt by that. Maybe you sit there and go, that's just the one thing that I can't forgive. It's the one thing I don't see God forgiving. It's such a horrific act. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's prostitution. Somebody sits back and go, how can they do such a thing? So corrupt, so devile, so debased. And maybe that's what sickens your mind. Or maybe it sickens your mind, the men who would pay for a prostitute. Maybe that is where you draw the line and saying, this is beyond redemption. Maybe it's really the lepers of our day is the pedophile. Sitting back and going, too far gone. Nobody wants to touch that individual. Nobody wants any kind of anything with them. Is it too far gone? Well, let me ask you the question. Does the gospel that you hold to, does the gospel that we preach, the gospel that we are sinners saved by grace through Jesus Christ, that message... Is it powerful enough to save all the untouchables that I just listed? If it's not in your mind, then you're not holding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're either doing one of two things. You're either belittling the power of God's grace to reach anyone. Or number two, you're belittling your own sin and lostness. If you can say, yes, he saved me by grace, but you consider others to be beyond touchable and beyond saving, then what you've said is somehow you yourself are are, are less sinful than anybody else, and you're not. The truth is, you and I are the leper. When we read the story, we're not thinking about other people. We don't leave this place going, okay, number one, I just need to love everybody that seems to be unlovable, which certainly is an appropriate aspect and application to this text. The first thing we should be saying is, I am the leper. I'm untouchable. My sin has made me separated from God. My sin has made all this. And then what we begin to do is if you've already, if you haven't been born again, you recognize his grace and his mercy. And he says, I will, I will. I'll forgive you, I'll restore you, I'll love you. I'll bring you into a brand new family. If you're already in the family, it means this for you. It means this for you going, you haven't blown it. I still forgive you. I love you. My grace is sufficient for you. Now take the same grace and mercy and bend it outward to everybody else in life, every other leper in this world as a demonstration of my love and my grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the time that we've had together. And now, Lord, right before we take the Lord's Supper, God, I just pray in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would just let us think on what we've heard, think on the gospel that we've heard, the gospel message, that, God, that you would draw us to that truth, that you would save some 
And God, for many of us, that we would come to the realization of what you've done and you would build up this heart of, of love and appreciation for you and all that you've done for us. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for saying that you will. We knew that you were able. Thank you for saying that you will. And we love you in your precious name. Amen. Let's stand together. and we're just.